The title of our seminar is called Unlock Revelation. I realize some of you thought we were going to do a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter approach to Revelation. What we're doing is we're using a topical approach. And the reason for this is several reasons, actually. First off, the book of Revelation, you may not be aware of this, but the book of Revelation follows, like the book of Daniel, it doesn't follow in time sequence, chapter after chapter after chapter. It follows a principle called recapitulation, which means God tells you something, then he backs up, and in a diff- another chapter, he'll tell you the same thing under different symbols, but he'll add to it. Then he'll back up, tell you the same thing again, and add something more to it. Those are, how many of you are school teachers? You know, if, you're, if you've got a first grader, you don't start teaching them algebra right away. You first have to teach them how to add and subtract. And then you build on it, but you have to keep going back and going forth on it. And so this is the approach that Daniel uses. This is the approach Revelation uses. And because there are so many people coming from different backgrounds who are not familiar with the scriptures, we are using the topical approach, dwelling on the main themes of Revelation. We have an advanced uh, seminar in Revelation where we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we really get heavy into the history on that, you see. And how many of you like history? Okay, you might like that one. (laughs) How many of you don't like history? Well, learn to like it. (laughs) That's all I can say. But anyway, so I hope this, this helps you to understand it. What we're trying to do is build a bridge. Also, as I mentioned last night, The book of Revelation is like a wheel on a bicycle. And the different books of the Bible are like the spokes on the wheel. And each of those spokes feed into the book of Revelation, which is the book that's specifically designed for the end times. And so for that reason, we are are going back, and so many people also believe that the Old Testament... uh, doesn't apply today. What we're trying to show you is that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and that the Old Testament talks about the coming of the Messiah and when the Messiah came, how he magnifies it and tells us what's going to happen even further in the end times. The book of Daniel is hand in glove with the book of Revelation. So tonight, we're going to spend quite a bit of time in the book of Daniel. Why? Because if John were living today, he'd probably be sued for plagiarism. Because some parts of Revelation are lifted directly from Jeremiah and from Daniel and from some of the other prophets, even using the same expressions. And so if we can understand what it meant back in the time of Daniel, maybe it'll help us to understand the parallels that we see in the end times. Because whether you like it or not, history does have a tendency to repeat itself. I don't believe it goes in circles. I think it spirals as it goes, adding new elements as we go along. So we'll see repeated patterns. But tonight, we want to get into the the most fantastic prophecy in the scriptures as far as I'm concerned. In the Old Testament, I never get tired of talking about this prophecy. And so, let's begin. Way back in Egypt, we're going to start tonight. In November of uh, 1922, there was an English nobleman by the name of Lord uh, Carnivorn, and he was sure that there was an Egyptian king buried in a certain location that hadn't been excavated before, but he didn't know where. And so he employed an archaeologist by the name of Howard Carter to go and find that tomb. 
He hunted and he hunted all around and he couldn't do it. For several years, he kept digging. Finally, he got the news that the nobleman was beginning to run out of money and he, he was uh, uh, going to cancel the next archaeological season. And that really destroyed his, his uh, ambition because he said, I know we're close. We've got to be somewhere in the vicinity of it. And so he begged Lord Carnarvon to give him one more archaeological year. And finally, he thought about it and he said, okay, you've got one more year. And sure enough, he, Howard Carter was out there digging around still not finding anything. But there was a, a certain young man, a boy, who had he had employed just to be his servant to help him get things. And that young man was out digging, and he came across a stone. And as he cleaned it off, it was a stone step. And before long, all the men were digging, and they dug out that step not only dug out the step, but as they kept digging down, they discovered a room. And in that room, as they broke through the wall, they discovered that there were three sarcophagi. That's uh, tombs, or uh, what would you call it, caskets. One of them in particular was made of solid gold. And they, they found others that were gold-plated. And as they began to dig more and more, they finally found the tomb of the boy king who is now famous, Tutankhamun. Tutankhamun had been sleeping unmolested in his tomb for 3,300 years until Howard Carter broke through. Imagine that. That must have been... uh, Tremendous, spectacular find. It's digging for something as, as valuable as that. But you know, that was only the tomb of a dead man. My friends, we are going to discover something even more spectacular. It's not the tomb of a dead man, but rather we're going to find the uh, teachings of a man who once was dead but is alive forevermore. And as we do so, we need to go back to the Old Testament and begin with one of the greatest stories ever told. The book of Revelation tells us who that man was that we're going to be finding. For we find in the book of Revelation, it calls it the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. So God wrote the book of Revelation to be revealed. Not to be hidden, but to be revealed. What was he revealing? Things which must shortly take place. So, from the time of John forward, the book of Revelation is telling us things that are coming upon the earth. As we look at this book, we need to understand what kind of people God wants us to be. So that when Jesus comes, we'll be ready. Right? And we need to understand, too, that our God is the same God from the beginning to the end. From Genesis to Revelation, there's only one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. As we look at that slide for a moment, it reminds me of a story of a young man. A young man who said when he was going to school, His teacher said, uh, he mentioned something about God. And the teacher said to him, you know, I don't believe there is a God. I'm an atheist. He said, you don't believe there's a God? He said, no, and I don't believe the Bible's true. How can you believe that? And he said, you know what? You just fulfilled Scripture. He said, I just fulfilled Scripture? He said, yeah. He said, you just fulfilled something I read a little while ago in Psalms. Psalm 14.1. It said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
Oftentimes people say there is no God. I don't believe in God. Guess what? What makes you think God believes in you? Are you the kind of person that God can believe in? That God can trust? We need to realize that we're really quite small compared to the great God of the universe. What matters is what God wants us to know and how he wants us to live our lives. As we as people approach death, it's amazing how their theology changes. You've heard of foxhole Christians who suddenly believe in God. Not too long ago, Steve Jobs, the founder, co-founder of Apple Computers, he was dying of cancer. And he, he uh, sat for an interview with uh, Walter Isaacson. And they began to talk about his life. And Isaacson said to him, well, Mr. Jobs, do you believe there is a God? And this man, one of the wealthiest men in the world, said, well, he said, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure there's a God. My friends, how many people today are not sure there's a God? And even in schools of higher learning, there are those who say they don't know. A few years ago, I was working on a degree over at Central Michigan University. One of my professors there was a sociology professor. And in our class, he was making fun of a nun who was in our class, making fun of her being religious. And he said do you really believe there's a God? And she said, yes, I do. And then he kind of, in a very smug way, said, well, I'm an agnostic. I don't, I don't know if there's a God or not, but I'm not going to worry about it. And you know there are times, folks, where sometimes you say things and think about it later, and all of a sudden I got tired of him picking on that poor nun and finally, I piped up, and I said, agnostic. That comes from two Greek words. A means without, and gnosko, which means knowledge. An agnostic is one who's proud of his ignorance. <laughs> I felt lightning going through that whole congregation, I mean, that, that whole classroom. And I thought, well, there goes that A, you know. And uh, he turned and he looked at me and looked shocked. And then all of a sudden, I saw a smile creep across his face, and he burst out laughing. And you know, at the end of the class, by the way, I did get an A in it, but at the end of the class, I think it was out of sympathy, but anyway, at the end of the class, he told us, he said, you know, I haven't been rehired for next year. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I went up to after class, and I said, you know, Dr. whatever his name is, I said, I know you're an agnostic and you don't know if there's a God or not, but I just want to give you something. And I handed him two little booklets. One was to know God and the other was Steps to Christ. And I said, I hope you're not offended by this, but I want you to know that even though you may not be sure there's a God, I'm going to be praying for you that the Lord will open something for you, that you'll have a job. He turned and he looked at me. He said, thank you very much for these. He says, I want to tell you, I will read these books. I've never seen him again. I've never seen him again. Whether or not he ever came to the Lord, that's the Lord's business. But the point of the matter is that there are those who are searching. There are those who don't even know they're searching. And yet God is reaching out to people. Whether Steve Jobs ever found the Lord or not, we don't know. But the, that's not the important thing. It's whether or not God knows. And tonight, we're going to be studying a book that is so fantastic. This book has brought more people to believe in God than almost anyone I can think of. 
there have been thousands of people who have come to believe in the scriptures from the prophecy we're going to study tonight. It's found in the book of Daniel. It's the grandpa of prophecies. Why? Because it outlines the history of the world for 2,600 years with 100% accuracy. I can't tell you what I'm going to do tomorrow. Right? 100% accuracy. Now, don't, don't think for a moment that the devil hasn't tried to block this prophecy. There are those who have tried to defeat this prophecy. Bing, bing, bing. It happened as the scripture said it would. So tonight, I'm going to take you back in history to the book of Daniel. And as we go, if my computer cooperates, we're going to be examining this prophecy that feeds into Revelation. Revelation really is a continuation of this prophecy in many respects. And there are other prophecies that are attached to this that Revelation picks up on. About two-thirds of the verses in the book of Revelation contain quotes for the Old Testament. Should we study the Old Testament? Yeah. If two-thirds of Revelation comes from there, it seems to me that it would be worth our considering. Those who throw out the Old Testament and try to study Revelation are going to come up with some pretty off-the-wall interpretations of it. Tonight, I'm going to give you one of the keys, the master key to understanding this prophecy. And to do this, we've got to go back to 600 B.C. 600 B.C. At the time, Babylon, the great kingdom of Babylon, was being ruled by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, how does this relate to Revelation? In the Old Testament, there's a Babylon It has a king who is also a religious leader. He's a king and a religious leader. Church and state were combined under this man. Revelation talks about in the end time that there would be a spiritual Babylon. There would be a religious and uh, civil leader. So there are parallels between these two prophecies. A lot of people miss that point. We find also that Nebuchadnezzar, it says in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and it left him. His dream left him. You know, I, I dream at night. And sometimes I dream some of the funniest dreams. I wake up laughing sometimes. Some of them are so off the wall. But I don't think that's the kind of dream that he's talking about. You see, it may be that I ate a pizza before I went to bed. That would affect my dreams. But you see, the Babylonian kings and the ancient kings, they believed that this was the way the gods communicated with them. And so they took very seriously these dreams. It says in Daniel 2, 1 through 4, then the king gave a command. He woke up. He couldn't remember the dream. How could he remember what it meant if he couldn't even remember the dream? And when he, he, he knew it was important, but he didn't know what it was all about. And being a good noble king, when he was up, everybody had to be up. And so the first thing he does when he wakes up, I don't know what time, 3 o'clock in the morning, He gives the command for all the wise men of Babylon, get out of bed and come and interpret his dream. And it says that he called the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. Now you need to understand something about these men. These different groups of men, they were wise men. Now the term wise man simply meant a government official. That's what it meant a government counselor. And as you know, our government officials are all wise men. Right? Curly, Mo, no. Anyway, um, 
No, those were wise guys, weren't they? Anyway, but we find here that it meant something, and he knew it was important, but who could he trust? He had been suspicious of these men. He knew that they would give him, uh, when he would tell them he had a dream, they would listen to the dream, and then they would give him an answer that could be taken either way. So whatever the result was, whether he won or lost, their prophecy would come true. Have you ever been caught in a situation like that? Uh, David, have you stopped beating your wife? If he says yes, what? It means he was beating her. If he says no, then he's still beating her, right? Those were the kind of answers that they would give the king. And he was suspicious of them. And so he gets them all out of bed. Now, you've got to realize a little bit about these men. Who were the magicians? The magicians didn't pull ha- rabbits out of hats. The magicians, how they used to foretell the future, they would have, have a big cauldron of water. And then they would drop oil on it. And then they would watch the oil slick as it spread across. And that's how they would try to foretell the future. They would have had a wonderful time with the, what was it, Exxon Valdez? (laughs) You see? Now, the astrologers, (coughs) they used to study the movement of the stars and the planets and so forth and try to forecast the future from that. You'll soon find out astrologers didn't know anything. You know what? They don't know anything more today than they did back then. Sorcerers. Sorcerers were those who communicated with the dead. Actually, there's another group called uh, necromancers who and necromancers sometimes called who used to try to communicate with the dead. But they would try, we would call them male witches today or spirit mediums. And they would try to foretell the future. The Chaldeans, the Chaldeans were the ones who used to study the ancient prophecies of their local philosophers and try to forecast the future from that. There's one group of men that, is not, uh, that are not listed there. They're listed later on in the book of Daniel. They were called the soothsayers. The soothsayers are my favorite. They used to they used to take animals, a chicken or a lamb or something, and they would slice it open and then look inside. And they would measure the way the organs were laid out and everything. And then they would try to forecast the future from that. I can just imagine one. Your Majesty, you are a long liver. No. no. Anyway, but you can see that this was the type of thing that they used And so it said, so they came and they stood before the king and the king said to them, I've had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. It's important. What's it about? Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now Aramaic is more of a Syrian. The the Babylonian, Syrian, and Hebrew languages are very much alike. And Aramaic is more of a Syrian, Babylonian, uh, usually the Babylonian we call Chaldean, but Chaldaic. But it's kind of a Syrian dialect. Jesus spoke Aramaic. And it says, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. Well, he knew they were going to say that. And the king knew that this was too important whatever it was that God was trying to communicate with him. And so he, he says, okay, look at verse 5 and 6. The king then answered and said to them, to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you will be cut in pieces. Now, friends, that's motivation. He was a very motivational speaker. You know, 
He said, okay, instead of me telling you the dream, you tell me what my dream was. And then tell me what it meant. Now these men claimed that they were in communication with the gods and that the gods spoke to them. But what do they say? They say, you know, whoa, you're being unreasonable, your majesty. And he goes on to say, if you don't, your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, reward, and great honor. I will honor you. Now, if you don't, this is very kind the way this is translated. It says, your houses will become an ash hill. You will find that the true meaning of this is, your house will become a dunghill. It will become an outhouse. In plain words, not only is he going to tear it down, but you're not going to want to live there afterwards. This is what he was, and Neb, they knew Nebuchadnezzar had a hot temper, and that Nebuchadnezzar would do what he said he would do. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. <laughs> well, okay. Many people think that they can foretell the future. There are many mystics today who use, you know, different seals and different uh, means. Some cons- uh, go to charts and s- try to foretell the future from their charts. But notice what it says in Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. God said, I will give you the answer to what you want, to what you need, that you won't be tripped up. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. When you are faced with a problem and you don't know which way to go, ask God. Remember? Ask and ye shall what? Knock and ye shall answer. Right? Or too often we don't bother asking. We don't knock on the door of heaven. We try to figure things out in our own understanding. But God says that he's the one that can and will give the answers to those who sincerely trust him. We don't have to depend on astrology and charts and things of that nature to foretell the future. Daniel 2, 7 and 8 says, let the king, first off, let me explain that this decree, when it went forth, it not only affected the the, uh, wise men of Babylon, but it also affected those who had just graduated from the University of Babylon. And we find that among them, there were four young men who had recently graduated from the University of Babylon, and they, Nebuchadnezzar himself gave the final exam, the oral exam. And because Daniel and his friends practiced good health uh, principles, in chapter 1, they, they came to the attention of the king. And when he gave the final exam, he found out they were smarter than all the rest of the people. They were healthier too than all the rest of the young men who were taking it. Why? Because they followed the principles of health found in the Bible. Did you ever stop to think that the health message is the right hand of the gospel? Many times... When you're, when you're doing things, uh, uh, having meetings or seminars or cooking schools or blood pressure clinics or whatever, sometimes you have a chance to talk to people about spiritual things on a level that maybe you, you couldn't any other time. And so we find that Daniel here, because he practiced good health principles, he had a sharp mind. Now, in the last days you're going to find that God will emphasize the importance of a health message again. Why? Because the distinction between right and wrong, between good and evil, will be so close together, 
you're going to need a sharp mind. You're going to also need a conscience that is sensitive to God so that the communication can get through to you as to which way you should go. It's one thing to ask for wisdom. It's another thing to follow it. And so we find here, this is important. And when Ashpenaz comes to say, Daniel, I've got to take you out and execute you. But but, why? And then he tells them what happened. And he said, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. The king is, isn't he being a little hasty here? Yeah, well, the king was very furious. And when he got very furious, he meant it. It says, let the king tell his servants the dream. He said, take me to see the king. So Daniel is brought before the king. Now, it's interesting that the king would not give the wise men extra time because the wise men, he knew, were going to come up with some fanciful interpretation if they had time and try to worm their way out of this thing. And he wouldn't give them extra time. But yet when Daniel comes in, Daniel says, Your Majesty, give me a little time and you will have the interpretation and the dream. You know, talk about stepping out in faith. I think he was stepping out in faith big time. He says, Let the king tell his servants the dream. And Well, this is the... Uh, the uh, wise men. Let the king give the tell the servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, "I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm." And he wasn't going to do it. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have ag- agreed to speak lying and corrupt words. He was on to them. They were con men. Before me till the time has changed, therefore tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. If you can tell me what I dreamed, if I can tell you what Dorothy dreamed last night, you would say, oh, well, maybe I can tell you what it means too. That's kind of hard to do. Well, they were getting really nervous now. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell it in the kingdom except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, first off, it says there is no one else who can tell the dream. They didn't think about Daniel. Secondly, they didn't think about the God of heaven. But notice, they also confess without being aware of it. They said, there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, they said before that the gods spoke to them. Now, they're saying they don't. Now, how do you think this will affect Nebuchadnezzar? Talk about blow your cool. For this reason, the king was angry and how he was a tad bit upset. Is that what it says? He was very furious. Later on, as you read in Daniel, last time, the next time he gets very furious, he throws three men in a furnace. So he, he was mad enough at them to destroy their houses and make them a dunghill. He was very furious and he gave the command to destroy all of the wise men of Babylon, including the young ones. Then Daniel went to his house and he made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, I want you to know that that is their Hebrew name. When they were taken into Babylon, part of the brainwashing technique and uh, deculturization process, Nebuchadnezzar changed their names. Just like when the white man took over the Indians' territory, the Indians who were used to hunting and fishing, they now put them on farms to raise crops, which was women's work. And they changed their names from running deer to Joe Smith. Why? To deculturize them, you see. This is what he did. Hannah, each of these names meant something 
that praise the God of heaven, the God of the Jews, you see. And Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, he changes their name. He changes Daniel's name to what? Anybody know? Belteshazzar. Not Belshazzar, that was a king. But Belteshazzar. That was Daniel's Babylonian name. They did that to Joseph when he was in Egypt. They changed Joseph's name to an Egyptian name. Anybody want to try that one? It was Zephnephaniah. I'm going to get kind of sloppy on that one. Zephnephaniah, you see. That's who he was to the Egyptians. No wonder his brothers didn't know who they were talking to, you see. So here they changed Daniel to Belteshazzar. And then Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they changed their names to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not to Bedwego, but Abednego, okay? Those are their Babylonian names. So when you read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then later you read about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you're not talking about six people. You're talking about three with the same name. They do that, by the way, in the New Testament too because Peter is sometimes called Cephas and sometimes he's called uh, Barjona. And you see, you're not talking about three different people, same person with different names, Okay. <clears throat> one's in the Hebrew, one's in Greek, and whatever else they want to throw in. Okay, so we find here, it says, Then Daniel went home, and he made this, what, what he knew was taking place, known to his friends. And then what did he do? They had a prayer meeting. Boy, I bet they really prayed, too. Because their lives were on the line, all of them. And what were they praying? Because they knew Daniel had to go back and face the king in the morning. They were praying that God would give Daniel the identical dream that he had given to the king and that he'd know what it was about. And so they prayed. And sure enough, God came through. They were praying concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, it didn't say that the rest of the wise men of Babylon, some of them wouldn't be put to death but I'm sure that some were spared because of him too. How many times could people be delivered from temptation if we would only pray for them? How many times would we be delivered from temptation if we only pray about it and ask the Lord to keep us from temptation? Maybe then we wouldn't have to ask forgiveness afterwards. You know, the great God who created the universe don't you think he's able if he could create something like that don't you think he could create a dream in a person's mind our God is so powerful do you realize that our universe is so large that if you started after Adam was created during that first creation week and you started here with Adam when he was created and you start heading across the universe all the way up to the modern time, according to the Bible, roughly about 6,000 years, okay? If you started moving along here, you know what? You'd only be, it's going at the speed of light. You would only be one-twentieth of the way across that galaxy today. Now, how many of these things are there out there Astronomers are finding all kinds of new galaxies constantly. And each of those with billions of stars in them. And this God who could do something like that could also touch the mind of men. Finally, Daniel goes back the next morning and he says, he comes in before the king and the first thing the king says, and you can read the story yourself. I want you to do the homework. I already read it. You read it, okay? He comes in before the king, and the king says, Daniel, can you give me the dream and the interpretation? Everything's writing on Daniel. 
The wise men, I'm sure, were lining the walls. And what does Daniel say? No, your majesty, I can't. But there's a God in heaven who can. And this is what you saw in your dream. I like Daniel. Daniel has kind of a sense of humor. He says to him, but your majesty, can't your wise men tell you this? And all the wise men are going, nope. You know? He says, can't the wise men of Babylon tell you these things? He said, neither can I, but there's a God in heaven who can. And he said, your majesty, this is what you saw. You saw a great image, a multi-metaled man. And this this image you saw had a head of gold. The chest and arms were of silver. The thigh and belly were of brass. And then it had two legs that were made of iron. And when you get down to the feet, they were partly iron and partly clay. And he said, and then, your majesty, you saw a rock that was cut out without hands. What does that mean? It means a rock that no human being had cut out. And this rock came and it struck the image in the feet. And all of a sudden, the whole image fell. And then that rock grew until it filled the whole earth. And Nebuchadnezzar, you can see what he says here. You, O king, were watching and behold a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. The word awesome means uh, uh, it fills you with awe. You're struck with awe. This image is head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thigh of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet, partly of iron and partly clay. You watched while the stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff on the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. Then the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Well, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Now notice he didn't say, I will tell the interpretation. What does he say? It's the God of heaven who's going to tell it through Daniel, I can just imagine Nebuchadnezzar right on the edge of his seat, mouth open wide, eyes bugged out. Yes, that's it. That's it. That's exactly what I saw. Now, what's it mean? As Daniel stood before him, Daniel didn't do it in his own strength. So often, when the Lord uses us, we try to take the credit for it. Daniel didn't. It showed the humble spirit that he had. And the king knew that he was in the presence of not only Daniel, but the God of heaven. Someone larger than himself. And then Daniel goes through and he tells what it means. He says, you are this head of gold. Now when it says you are the head of gold, it means you as king of Babylon are the head of gold. Whenever we talk about... uh, Putin, who are we talking about? If I, if I said to you, Putin bombed the United States today, you're saying Russia bombed America, right? Because the man represented the country, just like President Obama represents us in other nation, to other nations. You are this head of gold. Now, gold was very important in the time of Daniel, in, in the time of Babylon. You see, The Babylonian kingdom ruled from 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. And Nebuchadnezzar was a mighty king. Uh, He was probably the strongest ruler of the ancient times. And his silver, we call it silverware, but what should I say? What do you call the utensils? I use plastic and 
I don't know, you know. But anyway, uh, the, his eating utensils were made of, of gold. His plates were gold. Gold was everywhere. Silver was something you kind of tossed away. Kind of like people, I see people throw pennies away. Ah, it's only a penny. I run along behind him and pick it up and put it in my pocket because I'm scotch. Okay. But anyway, we see here that gold was the common uh, element in there. And he says, your kingdom is represented by gold because gold is the king of the metals. Now, later on, he's going to talk about birds in another prophecy. And he talks about the eagle. The eagle, the king of the birds. Okay? You see, he's saying the same thing, but different symbols. He talks about the lion of Babylon because the lion is the king of the animals. He repeats similar thoughts with different imagery. Babylon the Great, Nebuchadnezzar was standing there looking at this beautiful city. He says, this beautiful Babylon that I have created. Do you realize archaeologists digging around Babylon, uh, they have actually discovered uh, bricks. And these bricks that they built things out of, on the back of them, they actually have the name Nebuchadnezzar stamped on them. So we know that Nebuchadnezzar is a historic person. He really lived. He's not just uh, a made-up figure in history. And he actually, I'm trying to find the quotation I have where he said, maybe it's on here, but there it is right there. Nebuchadnezzar, they found this inscription. It says, the whole earth was prostrate at Babylon's feet. Babylon, the city which is the delight of my eyes, which I have glorified, may it last forever. He thought that it would last forever. Hitler thought his kingdom was going to last forever too. He had a very short forever, didn't he? And this is what God is saying to the king of Babylon as well. Because in Daniel 2.39 it says, But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. You want your kingdom to last forever, but you know your majesty is not going to do that. You know, that's not a nice thing to say to a king. You could lose your head for saying something like that. But Daniel did. And he said, it would be inferior to you. Why is it inferior? Because this one was made of silver. Now, if you were offered a pound of gold and a pound of silver, which would you take? Take the gold, wouldn't you? Because it's worth more. The next kingdom was composed of two uh, two groups of people. One was the Medes. The other, the Persians. Together they conspired and they brought down Babylon. And if you look at history, you will find it was the Persians who defeated the Babylonians and established what is called the Persian Empire. Notice that this image had two arms, the Medes and the Persians. And silver, they didn't have much gold in Persia. But they had plenty of silver. And that became a very important element to them. From 539 to 331 B.C., it ruled the, the world. And then in Daniel 2.39, then another, a third of bronze, bronze and brass are the same thing, which shall rule over all the earth. The third kingdom that came along would be the kingdom of brass. That was Greece, mainly under Alexander the Great, from 331 to 168 B.C. The Greeks ruled the world. Now, brass was very important because Alexander, he would have his men have brass shields. And when they would go into battle, what do you get when you polish brass? You get a mirror, don't you? When they would go into, matter of fact, they used mirrors before they started making glass mirrors. They made them out of brass. When they would go into battle, 
Alexander would have his men maneuver around so that the Persians had their backs to the sun. And before they went into battle, they polished their shields. And when they would go in to fight, they would take those shields and they'd aim it at the sun and reflect the sunlight into the eyes of the Persians that run them through. These medals were very important in history. We find in Daniel 2.40, it says, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Now, you're going to run in later on into a prophecy that talks about a beast that had iron teeth and iron claws and went around stomping and crushing things under its feet. You can see a repetition of this. What did that kingdom represent? None other than Rome. Rome ruled the world from 168 to 476, the official date for the fall of the Roman Empire is 476 A.D. It started in B.C., went through to A.D. Now, it's interesting that all the others, it didn't say were divided, but this one, it did. You see, before you had one nation conquering another nation, conquering another nation, but that didn't happen with Rome. Rome crumbled from within. It disintegrated, you see. It's interesting to notice that there are two legs. There was the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire. The Western Roman Empire, we think of as Europe. The Eastern part of the Roman Empire was called Byzantium, or the Byzantian Empire. And we find that the Roman Empire was divided in two. In history, you will also find there was pagan Rome and Christian Rome. So we see the division that would take place. This is the only one that said would be divided. Notice also in Daniel 2.41, Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Now how many toes are on the average person? I say average, some have more. Ten, right? Now, some people have more, some have less, I don't know. But anyway, but people generally have ten toes. This image, it, notice it was partly of clay and partly of iron. How many of you are welders? Anybody a welder in here? Okay. Um, how well can you weld iron and clay? doesn't work too well, does it? They don't stick together. And so we find that even though there would be attempts made to reunite that Roman Empire. After 476, that Roman Empire would be divided and would, be, would crumble and would not be welded back together again. History tells us that there were ten uh, nations that came out of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire crumbled into ten nations. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw in the iron mixed with the ceramic clay. So what happened? As the empire began to break up, tribes began to break away from it. Some of them were strong. You know, Germany has always been quite strong in history, right? The French were for a while, but then they went down. The English were for a while, but they were kind of fizzled out. But when's the last time you were ever invaded by the Swiss Navy? They've always been kind of weak. You see, there were strong and weak nations that came out of this. There would be attempts to weld them back together again, to make them strong like the, the Roman Empire used to be, but they couldn't go back. Daniel 2.41 says, Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw in the iron and clay mixed. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. The word fragile is used. As you saw iron mixed with clay 
They will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now, what's it mean with the seed of men? It means through intermarriage. They would try to put the, the Roman Empire back together again. But it, was it going to last? Was it going to work? No. It says they would not adhere together. They would not stick. There would be an attempt made, but it would not last forever. Many attempts have been made to break the prophecy of Daniel. As a matter of fact, we find that Napoleon tried it. Napoleon tried to unite Europe under French control. Didn't last. He met his Waterloo. We find a little bit later, Kaiser Wilhelm tried to do the same thing. But he came and went. In more recent times, some of you may have been alive back then, Adolf Hitler tried it. And you know Adolf Hitler, very interesting about him. He was aware of this prophecy. It had been made known to him by one of the uh, maids that was a Christian. And he was told, you're not going to be able to do it. And he said, I'm sorry, it doesn't fit into my plans. Hitler is gone, the prophecy stands. It's interesting that Hitler was putting together the Roman Empire again. We find Charlemagne tried to do that under the Holy Roman Empire. It, it fell apart even before he died, you see. And Hitler, as he was putting together the different parts of the Roman Empire, there was one part he needed left, and that was England. He was about ready. He had started, before he was bombing the military targets, now he started bombing the civilian targets. And the British were on their knees. They were ready to give in. As a matter of fact, they had already drawn up uh, the terms of surrender, but they had not yet presented it before Parliament. And two things happened. One thing was, a little roly-poly man came to the, the prime ministership. And a little round fellow used to puff on a cigar. And he used to say, never give up. You know, with that bulldog look on his face. And he encouraged the people. A second thing, for some unknown reason, and historians today still can't explain it, Hitler, who was, had the advantage, all of a sudden stopped. He changed his tactics, and instead he turned around and invaded Russia. Every, he, was a, he was a disciple of Napoleon. Napoleon made the same mistake. He went into Russia, and he got bogged down in the Russian winter. And here Hitler who had been studying Napoleon, he goes and does the same thing. And before you know it, Hitler is defeated and the empire collapses. My, my friends, when it talks about the mingling of seeds of men, it's interesting to note that during this, the uh, First World War, the Tsar of Russia, the Kaiser of Germany and the um, King of England were all first cousins. World War I was a big family squabble. And you know what? They even looked alike. If you took the beards off of them and put them side by side, their profiles were very similar. Why? Because they were all descendants of Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria wanting to unite all of Europe, put together the Roman Empire again, married this son to this uh, queen over here and this daughter to that king over there, hoping that she would get a grandchild who would inherit all of this real estate. And you know what? Even though she tried to unite it by mingling the seeds of men, it crumbled because it 
God had ordained that it wouldn't happen. Many armies have gone against this prophecy, seeking to destroy what God had ordained would last. But you know, there is an end to this coming soon. And it won't be because of armies. It will be because God himself is in control. He's the one that holds human history together. All of human history will come to an end. But what will bring it to an end? It will be the rock, you see. That rock that came out of nowhere. And it strikes the image on the feet. And all of a sudden, all of human history crumbles. You know what? That rock is the rock of ages. And he will set up his kingdom. My friends, that's still in the future. Babylon has come and gone. So has Persia. So has Rome. Even the divided kingdoms. Queen Victoria is gone. Human history to that point is behind us. So where are we in this great passage of time? We are living in the toes of that image. You are living on the toenails of time, ready to be trimmed off. According to this prophecy, this is where we are in the scope of human history. And for 2,600 years, from about 600 B.C. till now, this prophecy has been accurate. Now, if it's been accurate about all that which is behind, don't you think it will be accurate about that which is ahead? My friends, the next thing we're looking for is the coming of Jesus Christ himself. And he shows us the way to eternal life. As a matter of fact, it says in Daniel 2, 44, 45, And in the days of these kings, that's talking about the kings after the crumbling of Rome, in the days of these kings, in plain words, the nations that we know today, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. So that rock kingdom is the one that we look forward to. It's the culmination of human history. And the kingdom shall not be left to to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume these kingdoms. And it shall stand. Consume. That means to eat them right up, right? It means to completely do away with them. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze, the clay and the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass after this. The dream is what? Certain. And its interpretation is sure. Today, people are trying to unite Europe under the common market. They are trying to, through trade agreements, they are trying to unite Europe. It will look like they're succeeding then at the last minute all crumbles and falls apart. God lets man go as far as he can before he yanks the rug out from under him. And so we see here that the dream is certain. And my friends, the next great event is the coming of the Lord Jesus in the clouds of heaven. I want you to notice, I don't don't know if you can see it too well, But right up here, there's supposed to be a picture of Jesus. And by the way, someone brought to my attention uh, that last night uh, they thought I said, what was the word? Huh? Lotus. If I did say that, forgive me. I I don't know why I would. But uh, no, what we're looking for is the coming of Jesus Christ in those clouds. He's coming, why? To redeem those to take those that they may be where he is. Oh, my friends, we who look forward to that time, look forward with hope, with faith. We are not called to fear in these last days, 
We are called to have faith in these last days because our redemption draws nigh and our faith is sure. Now you know why I love to talk about this prophecy. And this is the background behind Revelation and some of the things that we'll be getting into. I wanted you to come back on Thursday night, not tomorrow night, Thursday night, 7.15. We're going to be talking about the war behind all wars. We were talking before that there would be wars and rumors of wars on earth. But you know what? There's an even bigger war. There's a cosmic war that Revelation talks about too. Come back and hear the rest of the story. Let's have prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for your many blessings to us. Help us, Lord, in faith, not fear, to look forward to the coming of our Lord and our God. Keep us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.